In today's world, technology feels ephemeral. Taking your company into the cloud. Freedom to connect from anywhere. The serverless computing space. Real-time sports anytime you want. The UK's fastest 5G network. Next stop, no the future. No Zoom out. Jog back and forth. Because super low latency means zero lag. Using an abstraction layer called a hypervisor. Hey, Google, turn the lights on in Kevin's room. And here. First emails replaced envelopes, then meetings became video calls. Now maybe even your doctor is an app. All instantly accessible remotely, all hovering in the cloud. We call it the virtual world, but even if you can't pet the raccoon in Animal Crossing, nor shake hands with your new boss across the Atlantic, welcome to the team. That doesn't mean there's no physical presence. Welcome to a data center. The cloud is not in the sky. It is in buildings like this, filled with servers that store data and provide computing power. Google, for instance, has data centers in 14 sites in the US alone. And that hum is the cooling system, a massive upgrade on your laptop fan, and a reminder that everything consumes energy. At the lowest estimates, Data centers use 1% of the world's electricity, which means all those emails, playlists, and shared docs do have a carbon footprint, even if individually very tiny. Much bigger, though, is the impact of artificial intelligence. When you're training an AI model, such as a neural network, in order to learn, um, kind of like humans, it needs to see data several times and actually several hundreds of thousands of times, usually. Sasha Lucioni is a postdoctoral researcher at the Miele Institute in Quebec. She researches the environmental impact of AI. So, for example, if you're training a neural network to, uh, I don't know, classify cats and dogs, uh, you'll have a training data set of, for example, 100,000 images. It can be millions of images. And essentially, you're showing pairs of images to the network, and you're going to be asking, is this a cat or a dog? And you do this, honestly, uh, like up to you know, millions of times. And so now data sets are getting bigger and bigger. They can be really millions of images or, you know, tens of millions of words. And that's why it's becoming more and more um, energy intensive. Or to put it another way, the human brain uses about 20 watts of power a day, enough to power one dim light bulb. The machines we're building to try to recreate our brains need much, much more than that. So as we've been hearing in this series, AI may help us address some of these big scientific challenges of our times, such as climate change. But it also comes at a significant environmental cost of its own. Will AI be a net benefit when it comes to energy transition? Or does it throw up a new area of concern? You're listening to Tectonic, I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times and your host for the series. This season, we've been asking whether the reality of artificial intelligence lives up to the hype. Today, there are questions about the energy-hungry AI systems we're building. It's not just that sophisticated learning machines need bigger data sets, more computing power, more energy. Some argue the algorithms they power also turbocharge consumption. More shopping, more deliveries. 
But there are also huge hopes that AI could cut emissions and help us adapt to global warming. It could predict the weather so we know when to use solar or hydropower. It could read satellite images so we know more about emissions. And its powers could be harnessed to tell us vital information about our ice caps and oceans. I went down to Antarctica with a group of penguin-counting scientists. This is the FT's environment and clean energy correspondent, Leslie Hook. And their job was to determine what is the population of a certain colony of penguins in a certain place. And when I got the assignment, I thought this is going to be one of the best trips of my life. I get to go to Antarctica. I get to see penguins. It's like a dream come true. Um, but when I got there, I was really struck by how difficult and dangerous it is to do anything in Antarctica at all. I spent a lot of the trip either seasick or covered in penguin poo. And just accessing these colonies was incredibly difficult because there's really bad weather down there most of the time. The thing about a place like Antarctica is it's incredibly hard to access, and it's sort of this last great unknown place of the planet. And what's quite amazing is that satellite imagery, drones, AI, machine learning are all giving these scientists tools to access parts of Antarctica at a scale that would have been unthinkable before. And what kind of penguins were you following? We were really interested in chinstrap penguins. They're one of the smaller penguin species, and they specialize in eating krill. This fact is quite relevant for the algorithms that are analyzing chinstrap penguin colonies, because uh, when the computer is is looking at this image and trying to count the penguins, it's actually not counting the penguins themselves. It's looking at the patterns of penguin poo, which is bright pink. And are machine learning systems a lot better than humans at counting penguin poo? At the moment, the answer is not quite yet, but they probably will be soon. The team I was with was a group from Stony Brook University, led by Professor Heather Lynch. So it was a bunch of her uh, students uh, doing this field work, and they were sitting there examining photos of these colonies that were taken by a drone. So once we got to the colony, um, there was simultaneously some of them doing penguin counting the old-fashioned way, which was with a clicker. It's like one of those handheld clickers. You just look and you click. And that's how you count penguins. And that's the way penguin counting has been done uh, for years. Um, but another part of that same group brought their drone and they would take the drone, fly over the colony, take images. And then the students who were working to train the algorithm would individually identify each nest by putting a little box around, around the nest. And what are they hoping to gain from having a more accurate picture of these penguin colonies? The thing about Antarctica is for a long time, it's been much harder to research Antarctic wildlife than the ice itself. So there have been studies done of, of the ice, um, the melting, uh, the geography, but it's very, very hard to get a sense of, of the animal populations. Some penguin species are actually thriving in spite of climate change or maybe even because of it. But others are really threatened by climate change. The emperor penguins that live on the ice are directly threatened by a warmer climate. Uh, and species like the chinstraps are also um, diminishing in numbers, uh, probably because of the changing krill uh, distribution. 
I mean, it sounds like you had a fantastic adventure in Antarctica, but is the idea kind of longer term that um, scientists will be able to use AI technology to, to replace these penguin clickers bobbing around in boats? That's exactly it. It's so difficult and dangerous and expensive to get there, not to mention the emissions that are involved, that it would be much more powerful to be able to use satellites and drones to do the same job. So the field is really moving from one in which ecologists had to spend months or years out in the wilderness themselves with a clicker in hand um, to one where it's all about researchers who are in front of their computers, in labs, training an algorithm to do that observational work for them. And one group that's been at the forefront of this has been the British Antarctic Survey. I recently spoke with Jen Jackson. I'm Jen Jackson. I'm a um, molecular ecologist. I work at the British Antarctic Survey. My particular specialization is large whales, and I'm interested in their population biology and recovery from whaling in the Southern Hemisphere. And she has had a lifelong passion for this work. I was always someone that just really liked marine life. So I went into a major shark phase when I was a kid and collected names of all the sharks in a notebook. And I think at some point I thought whales were pretty cool. And I knew that my interest is really in how to use tools for understanding the ocean as well. So I think whales are, whales are really important because they can tell us a lot about what's happening in the ocean. One of the things she's done is study marine mammal populations by listening to sounds picked up by microphones dropped into the sea. And she's done a lot of work using satellites to study whale populations and see what whales are up to in some of the farthest corners of the planet. So what can whales tell us about what's happening in the ocean? Well, Jackson considers them to be a sentinel species, which means they tell us how much life there is in the water. Whales are a very good representative, really, for the health of an ecosystem on a feeding ground because they are only going to go and feed somewhere where they have good quantities of food because of their huge size. It's not really worth it for a whale to open its mouth unless it's got a good amount of food there to eat. So if you've got whales present feeding in an area, that confirms it must be a productive area. And with climate change, there's a worry about changes in sea ice patterns and about whether animals like krill might be less plentiful or might be living in different places than they were before. Uh, but actually, monitoring them has also produced some good news. We have some concerns about how climate change may be impacting, for example, the distribution of krill across the Southern Ocean and maybe that it's contracting southwards, particularly in the South Atlantic. But seeing things such as, for example, Antarctic blue whales returning to South Georgia waters, we can be quite happy about the fact that there's a reasonable amount of food around for those whales still to feed on. And clearly it's supporting a lot of other marine life. And what exactly is Jackson doing with AI? Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. 
Well, she's training data sets to recognize whales and to recognize stranded whales in some of the most remote corners of the globe. So it's almost like having this sort of omniscience to see creatures that human eyes might never have seen in in places where they'd be very unlikely to be sighted. Now, the reason AI is so valuable for that is that AI tools really enable us to count whales on images much more efficiently than a human could. And they therefore mean that you can do this kind of work more rapidly because at present, the time it takes for researchers to manually look through satellite images looking for individual whales are really, really significant. And they think that this could develop into an incredibly powerful tool. Another thing we're very interested in is how can we study strandings from space? Because whale strandings are recurring more regularly um, as whale populations recover and as they're impacted by uh, pollution events in the sea, um, changing climate, affecting their food availability down south. All of these things um, increase the risks of mass strandings. And again, counting them from space is a really promising avenue for potentially understanding those strandings and getting to them a bit more rapidly, particularly in remote regions. Uh, One story that Jackson told me was about a mass stranding of whales, over 300 dead whales in this remote place in southern Chile. They were discovered months later after they'd stranded. Um, Because a few months had elapsed, it was quite hard to tell what had killed um, the animals. So we went back into archival satellite images. They worked with a satellite provider to find the right images and manually count the whales to learn how and when the stranding had occurred. Uh, When whales decompose, they turn a sort of pinkish-orange color, which they can pick up in a blurry way on satellite images. But this gave Jen and her team the idea to use AI to build on that method. At present, again, you know, the kind of timescale over which you could take an image and then have a look at stranded whales on an image and then um, identify that there is a stranding. It's just way too slow for that process to be useful for any kind of live identification of mass strandings taking place. And the hope is that by perfecting this AI image recognition technology, they'll be able to give governments an early warning to alert rescue operations and uh, let them know that strandings are happening in these far off places. And Jen Jackson is hoping this technology can help us better understand what's going on in the ocean to cause those strandings in the first place. You've made a strong case here about the potential use of AI to help scientists working on environmental issues. But how do we square that, Leslie, with how energy-intensive AI systems are themselves? Well, that's a really good question because we know that AI processes are getting bigger and more energy-intensive. I spoke with Sasha Luchoni, whom we heard from earlier on, and she does make a strong case that it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. Yeah, I think it's currently there's the this philosophy of, well, we, we can do it, so we're going to do it. There's there's rarely this, this reflection upon, is this something we should be doing? Is there a more efficient way of doing it? Um, and I mean, I understand because AI is, is, is a relatively new field and there's kind of this uh, youthful uh, expansionist uh, philosophy of uh, well moving fast and breaking things, for example. Um, so you know there has to be a wisdom, a certain wisdom of knowing when to use AI and, and doing it mindfully. She says even people that are working on systems designed to combat climate change or environmental impact in some way don't think about their own energy consumption very much. 
I mean, this is this is generally a problem. Um, people tend to disassociate themselves with the climate crisis and, and think that it's kind of an external problem, doesn't really um, affect them. And so I think that in AI, it's kind of similar. There are people working on, you know, robots for triaging recycling or, or there's there's really some great projects. But we also need to be conscious of our own carbon footprint. And that's part of tackling the climate crisis. This is part of fighting climate change. Well, what does Lucioni propose people do about this? Well, she and her colleagues actually build a really cool calculator so people can measure the carbon footprint of any algorithm they're building. Put in the hardware you're using, the provider of your cloud service, what region you're in, and how many hours you're uh, doing the compute for, and then out pops an estimate of your CO2 emissions. And that enables people to just have some awareness and know how much pollution is likely to be associated with with their research. And some of the big tech companies who have developed these systems make grand pronouncements about how green they are and what they're doing to reduce their energy consumption and so on. Google is the first major company to eliminate our entire carbon legacy. We have now started putting solar cells on the roofs of all of our fulfillment centers. Facebook's data center in Newton County is going to be run on 100% renewable energy. In Sichuan Province, China, we found a way to build a 40-megawatt solar farm. We must take responsibility to address the carbon footprint of our own technology and company. We have to get ourselves to net zero. Are they for real? I think they are way ahead of the curve in terms of what other companies are doing on this, but I think that they're interest in cutting their emissions is also a little bit self-serving because they can see so clearly what their energy needs are, what they're going to be in the future, and sort of nip this in the bud by having the grandest climate schemes of any corporate entity. Um, I mean, they're spending lots of money to do this. I can't help but respect the amount of energy and, and money they've put in towards cutting their emissions. But I think that that also implies that they know that it could be a real problem for them if they weren't doing that. One other aspect of this debate is that the tech companies themselves are using AI to help reduce their own energy consumption. And when we spoke with Demis Asabis, for example, who heads up Google DeepMind's powerhouse, he told us that uh, they're working on algorithms that can help reduce the consumption of these data centers. We built a system that uh, reduced the amount of energy that, that the enormous data centers that Google use, um, 30% less energy used for cooling those data centers, which is pretty significant. How effective are those systems, do you think? You know, AI has a lot of use cases that can reduce emissions and, and help fight climate change. Um, that's certainly part of, the, part of the beauty of it, whether it's making data centers more efficient or helping renewable energy systems run more efficiently or helping urban planning. Another area where AI has a big impact uh, on climate issues is in the modeling that we do to understand what our planet will look like as CO2 emissions uh, increase. Earlier this year, the Met Office announced that they were building a 1.2 billion pound supercomputer that's going to be the fastest supercomputer in the UK uh, and will be producing more accurate weather and climate models to help with future extreme events, natural disasters, flooding, and and the like. So I think AI, in terms of its impact on the environment, is really 
no better or worse than a lot of other things that we do every single day. We fly planes, eat meat, drive cars. The difference with AI is that its impact is kind of invisible. It's ethereal. It's far away. Um, you know, I don't see these data centers next to my home. Um, and its use is growing at such a huge rate that it will soon be just a giant proportion of energy consumption. And this comes at a time when energy use from other sectors is largely falling. Um, energy use in homes is declining as they become more efficient. Same with businesses. Cars are going electric. So I feel like the energy needs of AI is this one kind of unsolved part of the puzzle that we have to figure out really, really soon. As with almost all other technologies, AI has the potential to be used in highly beneficial ways. But when it comes to the environment, we need to make sure that it does not exacerbate the very problems it is designed to solve. The challenge is to ensure that by speeding up the flywheel of economic growth, we do not damage our planet even more. You've been listening to Tectonic from the Financial Times in London with me, John Thornhill. Alice Fordham is our senior producer. Josh Gabbett-Doyen, our assistant producer. Oluwakemi Aladasui and Liam Nolan are our development producers. Sound design and mixing were by Breen Turner. Cheryl Brumley is the executive producer for this series. And original scoring was composed by Metaphor Music. Join us next time when we'll be talking about autonomous weapons and the AI arms race.